0: Hello and welcome to Discussions with DPIC. I'm Ann Holsinger, managing director of the Death Penalty Information Center. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rob Warden and John Seasley, the authors of a law review article and profile series on unrequited innocence, which addressed the numerous cases of people with strong evidence of innocence who nonetheless have not been formally exonerated. Rob Warden is the executive director emeritus of the Center on Wrongful Convictions and a co-founder of the National Registry of Exonerations and Injustice Watch an investigative journalism project focused on criminal justice reform. John Seasley is a reporter at Injustice Watch. Thank you both for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Wrongful convictions are a pervasive problem in the criminal justice system and are especially troubling in capital cases where an innocent person could be executed. Deepik has identified at least 166 cases since the death penalty resumed in the U.S. in the 1970s, in which people who were wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death were later exonerated. But the question of innocence and the death penalty goes far beyond just exonerations. Would you please explain your concept of unrequited innocence and why you decided to write about it? Well,
2: those 166 cases that you refer to during that same period of time, we had about 1,500 executions. That means that for every 10 executions, uh, we had one exonerations, uh, which seems a uh, just an unconscionable uh, level of inaccuracy. And what's more, that 166 that you refer to is not the, the, the universe. These are the ones that have been identified. There are other people, such as the 24 cases that we wrote about, or the 25 defendants in the 24 cases we wrote about, uh, where there is uh, persuasive evidence of actual innocence, but there has not been uh, adequate uh, relief. Some of them have been removed from death row. Some remain on death row. uh, Some took uh, pleas of convenience to get out. And uh, we just thought that that was worth delving into.
0: So your report, as you said, examines 24 cases involving 25 defendants who were sentenced to death but have not been fully exonerated despite having what you describe as compelling evidence of innocence. You've been featuring these stories in your newsletter and on the Injustice Watch website. How did you select the cases that you included?
2: Well, I um, am also a a co-founder of the Innocence Network. And so I queried all the members. There are 67 law school-based innocence projects around the country, and I just asked them all to identify cases. Uh, The ones that we finally selected for inclusion in this report were probably about half of those uh, that were identified. Uh, We think that some of the others are meritorious, but one of the things that we were looking for was new evidence, or at least evidence of actual innocence, that came to light after the trial. So we um, uh, eliminated some cases because they didn't contain that kind of evidence. Um, but this, uh, these 24 cases are by no means uh, an exhaustive list.
0: So from your discussions with the, the Innocence Network, do you have a sense of how many more cases of unrequited innocence are still out there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there's, there was a study done in 2014 that looked at how many people may be on death row who have not been fully exonerated. And the authors are very explicit in claiming that they tried to make the number as conservative as possible. And their conclusion was that about 4.1% of all people sentenced to death are innocent. At the time, there had been 138 people exonerated. And they their figure would mean that at the time, 340 people were sentenced to death who were innocent. So we're talking about hundreds of people uh, since the 1970s who are innocent and have been sentenced to death.
2: And I might add that I believe this 4% estimate is actually quite low. Uh, If you look at the the state of Illinois, um, uh, between reinstating the death penalty in 1977 and finally abolishing it legislatively in 2011, uh, 303 individuals were sentenced to death. Of those, 21 have now been released based on substantial evidence of actual innocence. That is an error rate in excess of 6%, and I am confident that there are a number of other Illinois cases where um, the defendants were innocent that have not been uh, identified and have not been exonerated. So the error rate could easily be 8%. Illinois has, of course, had a, a particularly active pro bono legal community and and journalists who have looked into these cases uh, in in great depth. If that same effort existed in every state, I think that the results elsewhere would um, be as as stunning as uh, the ones in Illinois are, and perhaps even more so.
0: Those are really striking numbers. So your series profiles 25 defendants, one of whom is Larry Swearingen, whose case was the subject of a recent episode of Discussions with t so our listeners may already be familiar with him. But would you share one or two other stories that you found especially compelling?
1: Um, Yeah, so one that I found particularly compelling was the case of Kevin Cooper, who was sentenced to death in California for accused of murdering three members of a family and uh, a young child who was a friend of one of the children. There was very little forensic evidence that places him at the scene. And in fact, on his appeal, dissenting with the majority opinion, 10 appellate judges signed a 100-page dissent in which they laid out the evidence that they believe the police framed Kevin Cooper. And the author of the appeal said as much himself in uh, in a speech that he gave at New York University, this is I mean, it's obviously a huge claim to make that a police department framed an innocent person. But when that's coming from an appellate judge, that carries a lot of weight. So that was a case that was very interesting to me and that there seems to be a growing number of uh, of support for out in the at least on Twitter and among celebrities. uh, Kim Kardashian has met with Kevin Cooper and is actively campaigning for his innocence. Um, so we'll see what happens with that case.
0: Thank you. The cases that you feature provide a terrifying picture of the legal system's inability or unwillingness to address the issue of innocence. When you looked at these cases, did you see any patterns or themes, both with respect to wrongful convictions and death sentences, as well as regarding the efforts to stonewall or prevent exonerations?
2: Uh, You know, I could say in general that the worse uh, the crime at issue, the lower the standard of proof. Mm. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, absolutely stunning what juries can be persuaded to believe when you've had a really horrific crime, a multiple murder of, um, of uh, innocent victims. But uh, we've also seen patterns here of racial discrimination and, of course, the use of in-custody informants. Uh, in the vernacular snitches who have um, often testified that these people, uh, that the defendants confessed to them in jail or prison. For the most part, these confessions uh, or alleged confessions prove unreliable. We've also seen uh, serious uh, police misconduct, and in some cases prosecutorial misconduct, and these all of these ish- things tend to uh, occur in concert over and over again. in in many of these cases?
1: Yeah, it's usually never just one uh, example of a pattern, but rather several of these things together. And oftentimes it happens in a case where there's weak to no forensic evidence that places the defendant at the scene. And in those cases, oftentimes a jailhouse informant or incorrect forensic interpretations will occur, occur at the trial that help bolster the state's case.
0: So what do you think these cases tell us about the administration of the death penalty across the U.S. and the ability or inability of courts to redress errors?
2: Well, it's a pretty miserable situation when you look at it in sum, The courts, of course, are bound by law, the appellate courts are bound by law to interpret cases uh, to view the evidence in these cases in the light most favorable to the prosecution. If that's going to be the case, what we ought to do is turn it around and tell juries uh, in no uncertain terms that they must view the evidence in the light most favorable to the accused. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that might result in fewer wrongful convictions. And, of course, you could expect um, a great resistance to that from prosecutors because while, in effect, uh, reasonable doubt means essentially the same thing, uh, reasonable doubt is sort of in the eye of the beholder and can very easily be overcome. Frankly, when you look at a lot of these convictions, you, you can see, How you can't, you just marvel at how any rational prior of fact possibly could have construed this evidence of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And this happens so often in the capital justice system uh, that we, if we've learned anything, it's that we should not rely on the judgments made by this system to take lives.
0: Your article, your law review article offers several remedies for reducing the number of wrongful convictions. And one of the ones that you suggest is having two juries in capital cases, one that would determine guilt and another to determine the penalty. Could you explain to our listeners why you believe that this would reduce the risk of wrongful convictions?
2: Well, yes, there have been uh, repeated studies that have shown that juries that are death qualified are also overly conviction prone. And obviously, you would need to death qualify a jury to impose a a death sentence. You can't have a member of that jury saying categorically under no circumstances would he or she uh, vote to impose a death penalty. But we ought to have a separate jury, a more objective jury that could be impaneled for the trial stage, then discharge that jury for the guilt innocence phase and impanel a new jury that is death qualified.
0: Do you think that there would be any benefit to educating jurors about causes of wrongful convictions or the prevalence of racial bias or or other aspects of the criminal justice system before they serve?
1: I mean, I think providing accurate statistical information on the reasons why this happened wouldn't result in more inaccurate outcomes. So, you know, for to go into a trial, having a better uh, assessment of why wrongful convictions happens is only going to make you more skeptical of certain forensic interpretations and more willing to understand that bias could play a role in trials, especially if you are, you know, a member of an all-white jury uh, who is deciding on whether or not to convict someone who is a black person or other cases in which there's implicit bias at play.
0: mm mm-hmm. One of your other recommendations for reform is that you suggest an outright ban on testimony by jailhouse informants, which is among the leading causes of wrongful convictions. Why a categorical ban on jailhouse informant testimony?
2: Well, we might, uh, uh, you know, there might be an exception if the authorities can send somebody into the cell wearing a wire and get a, uh, a, a video or, or a, a, an audio recorded confession or even better yet, a video recorded confession. But short of that, uh, we know that uh, jailhouse informant testimony is so in, has proved so inherently unreliable that the chance um, uh, that it's accurate uh, is so sufficiently small that it simply ought not be admitted. Now, obviously, that carries some risk that there are people who are guilty who would go free if this kind of uh, evidence were excluded. But in fact, if a person is guilty the testimony of a jailhouse snitch is so ancillary uh, that the conviction uh, can rest on other, much more reliable evidence, and should rest on reliable evidence. And one of the the serious problems that happens on appeal. Uh, when an appellate court starts looking at this evidence and all of the evidence evaporates, except perhaps the, uh, this jailhouse snitch testimony, the appellate court can always say, well, maybe the, the, the trier of fact, that meaning being the jury, believes the jailhouse snitch. Well, maybe so, uh, but that carries with it a very high risk of imposition of a wrongful uh, uh, death sentence and perhaps a wrongful execution. Yeah, jailhouse informants
1: are so incentivized to provide a confession testimony. Um, there Almost all, so many of the cases that we looked at had jailhouse informants who later recanted because they weren't given the thing that they said they were offered by a prosecution. And when you look at the fact that they have such a huge motivation to offer up false testimony, it really undermines anything that they could say. There was one case, uh, Walter Ogrods, that's undergoing DNA testing right now in Philadelphia, where a jailhouse informant uh, was helping the prosecution who was known as the Monsignor because he'd heard more confessions than a priest. (laughs) And the prosecution didn't put him on trial because they worried that he had a lot of baggage. So they put his acolyte on trial, who essentially said the things that he would have said otherwise. But... You know, you have these people for whom they're, the trade-off is that they think they're going to get out of jail sooner, or that they're going to get special treatment sooner if they provide false testimony, and you you see the dangers of allowing this type of testimony to come up at trial.
0: Several of the cases in your series also involved prisoners who accepted plea deals that you describe as coercive. These prisoners are forced to choose between their immediate freedom and their integrity or their chance of ever being fully exonerated. You observe that prosecutors' willingness to offer and accept such pleas is a tacit acknowledgement that the defendants pose no danger to society. Why do you think prosecutors often insist on these types of deals which they know create financial and psychological hardships for the prisoner?
2: Well, for one thing, it shields them from embarrassment, and at least the governments they work for, from potential damages, uh, money damages later. So that's one issue here. But then why, uh, you might add, would, would a person who was innocent be willing to take such a plea? And the answer to that is simple. that Basically, plea bargaining is a modern form of torture. So here, Your case has been reversed. A new trial has been ordered. There's very little chance that the prosecution could prevail, but there is always some chance. After all, they convicted you once. The prosecutor, on the other hand, is then saying, all right, I have here in my left hand the key to your cell. All you have to do is take what is known as an Alford plea, which is a technical guilty plea without just simply acknowledging that the evidence might be sufficient to convict you, and you walk out the door today. Or you can sit here for a couple of years and uh, we'll put you on trial again and uh, and um, maybe we'll even convict you again. So just take your choice. Here's the key to your cell: You can walk out today or you can sit here for another couple of years and uh, and, and hope that you can prevail at retrial. It's uh, fairly easy to see why people take those deals. Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting in researching
1: this project was the fact that if an innocent person is in jail for murder, that means a murderer is not in jail for that same crime. And yet, the system is much more designed to protect itself uh, and shield itself from criticism than it is in actually obtaining uh, justice in light of new evidence or in light of revelations that someone may be innocent.
0: This year, three men with strong innocence claims, two of whom are featured in your series, have been scheduled for execution. One, Larry Swearingen, has already been executed. James Daly received a stay of execution in Florida, and Rodney Reed faces a November 20th execution date. With the public's growing awareness of wrongful convictions, why do you think we're still seeing so many cases like these?
2: Well, part of the problem is that the the system's unwillingness to acknowledge its mistakes, and it goes to great lengths to avoid that. As long as we have this um, system that many people call broken. Uh, I disagree with that term. I think broken implies that it once was not broken. It's dysfunctional and always has been dysfunctional, and it produces a very high level of wrongful results. We're going to just see them going on as long as we maintain this system without more safeguards to protect the innocent.
0: Is there anything else that you would like to add?
2: I would just say
1: people can keep reading these series as they come out on the Injustice Watch website. Injusticewatch.org will be releasing three a week for the next five weeks, and nine of the stories are already up there. You can also read the article uh, in the Northwestern Journal of Law and Social Policy if you're interested.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for reaching out. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. And for our listeners, to read the Unrequited Innocence series, visit InjusticeWatch.org. And you can also find links to the series and the law review article that the authors mentioned in the description of this podcast. To learn more about the death penalty, visit DeathPenaltyInfo.org. And to make sure you never miss an episode of Discussions with Dpic, subscribe with your podcast app of choice.